Sigmund Freud famously complained that despite 30 years of research, he was still no closer to answering the question, what does a woman want? If only he had lived to hear what Catherine Deneuve had to say, when, in the late 1970s, she did a series of commercials advertising Chanel perfume. It's not important that I'm Catherine Deneuve. I know he loves me for what I'm deeply. I know because he cares about the little things. He brings my coffee always in a small cup because it is precious to me. He gives me Chanel number five because I love to put it in a special place behind my knee. When I send him flowers, he understands what I mean. He takes me by the waist because he knows it touched me very much. He understands I cannot talk about feelings. He lets me show him in other ways. Having burst onto screens in 1964 as the vivacious Geneviève Emery in Jacques Demy's delirious musical The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Deneuve then amazed audiences the very next year with an entirely different performance when she portrayed a disturbed beautician in Roman Polanski's psychological thriller Repulsion. She followed that up in 1967 with yet another radical change when, in Louis Bunuel's Belle du Jour, she played Severine Sarkozy, a young middle-class housewife who, with an expensive wardrobe, exclusively designed by Yves Saint Laurent, appeared to while away her boring afternoons by engaging as a sex worker in a nearby bordello. Upon its release, audiences and critics were shocked, if not amused, or indeed aroused, to see that what might be going on inside a woman's head was exclusively sexual. In short, Belle de Jour seemed to answer Freud's question. And if the urban myth were true, that the average male thought about sex every seven seconds, Belle Le Jour seemed to suggest that a woman's mind positively pulsated with carnal obsessions. But before we go any further, we might just settle for this notion. Unless it is explicitly revealed, what goes on inside anyone's head is hard to guess. In our most private moments together, I don't feel like Catherine Deneuve, just deeply myself. It's incredible to me that I can be that close to someone. Sometimes, it can make me feel awkward, being so, so lost in feelings. He reminds me, with Chanel No. 5 bath powder and spray cologne. You don't have to ask for it. He knows what you want. Belle du Jour began as a novel written in 1928 by Argentinian-born French author Joseph Kessel. The novel had caused a scandal upon its publication, but the intervening decades had seen its reputation recede, and in that time, Kessel authored 13 more books, five of which were adapted into films. So he was surprised that a 38-year-old novel would suddenly attract anyone's attention, not least film producers with the track record of Robert and Raymond Hakim. Egyptian-born, the brothers had produced several French classics, such as Jean Renoir's La Bête Humaine, Marcel Carnet's Le Jour S'élève, Jacques Becker's Casse d'Or, and Michel Clément's Plan Soleil, as well as the Italian Michelangelo Antonioni's L'Eclisse. The Hakim brothers hoped that the combination of the scandalous novel and Bunuel's surrealism would translate onto the screen in a provocative manner. The only problem was, Bunuel wasn't too impressed by the book, dismissing it as melodramatic and moralistic. Yet curiously, when he and his collaborator Jean-Claude Carrier 
agreed to adapt the novel, their finished script adhered quite closely to Castle's plot, only departing in the increasingly convoluted and far-fetched final sequences. Instead, what Bunuel and Carrier did was suggest that while Severine's afternoons appear to be real, they just might be taking place deep within her imagination. It is a device David Lynch used to great effect in Mulholland Drive. Dream sequences have been a favourite of filmmakers from as far back as 1900, when British director G.A. Smith made the appropriately titled Let Me Dream Again. It shows a middle-aged man enjoying an evening out with a considerably younger woman. Their alcohol-fuelled fun lasts until the image cuts to the man asleep in bed. He wakens and is disappointed to discover that his escapade was only a dream. The woman he was with has now been replaced by his wife. She wakens and berates him for dreaming the dream she knows he has just dreamt. Fantasy, infidelity, pleasure, punishment, they are all present in Smith's film. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stone tonight, you've been trying to pick a fight with me and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child. And I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No. I'm sure of you. On first viewing, the dreams in Eyes Wide Shut appear very easy to identify. The same cannot be said for Belle du Jour. While there is not even the mildest hint in Kessel's book that a single event could be anything but real, several events in the film are clearly dreams. However, Bunuel made sure to shoot each event, whether a dream or not, in exactly the same manner, which means it is sometimes difficult to tell what is real and what is not. I like the idea of mystery. I love elusive people. I dislike very much familiarity. I think it can be a mistake. But what I really love is intimacy. How you created it to a woman's pleasure. Like Chanel number no. five, bass powder and spray cologne. Chanel, it's one of the pleasures of being a woman. If you want to really appreciate the difficulties in understanding surrealism, it is perhaps best to consult a Freudian, specifically the controversial Swiss psychoanalyst and psychiatrist Hermann Rorschach. Famous for his ink blots, the Rorschach tests invite individuals to declare what they see in each of them. In other words, project an interpretation onto a random shape. Which is somewhat similar to watching a surrealist film, where the plot, or semblance of a plot, is designed to resist consistent interpretation and therefore reveal more about the viewer. 
Upon initial viewings, critics agreed that Belle de Jour was yet another addition in a long line of Bunuel's satires in which he repeatedly railed against institutions such as the Catholic Church, the law and especially bourgeois hypocrisy. It seemed clear that what attracted him to Castle's novel was the opportunity to mock the institution of marriage. The curious thing is that David Lean had already depicted that institution in his early masterpiece Brief Encounter, where Laura Jessen, played by Celia Johnson, was tempted into, but ultimately did not carry through on, an affair with Dr Alec Harvey, played by Trevor Howard. The story is narrated by Laura as a confession to the audience, informing us not only of what happened and didn't happen, but more importantly, of what Laura was feeling and thinking at the time. In that way, the story offered at least some insight into what a woman might want, at least some of the time. And if not want, at least think about some of the time. But either way, Lean's adaptation of Noel Coward's play ends with an allusion to the fact that a woman is quite capable of living a double life at the expense of her husband's complete and blissful ignorance. Laura. Yes, dear. Whatever your dream was, it wasn't a very happy one, was it? No. Is there anything I can do to help? Yes, Fred, you always help. You've been a long way away. Thank you for coming back to me. Brief encounter is one thing. Belle de Jour is quite another. The big difference being that Severine's marriage concealed a myriad of sexual hang-ups and predilections, which, outside the privacy of a domestic arrangement, no one in the 1920s, 40s or even 60s would dare utter. On the surface, everything seemed calm and ordered. Deneuve's appearance seemed to feed into that, with many reviews referring to her impeccable wardrobe and implacable looks which led many to describe her as an inscrutable, icy blonde. So much so that you might be forgiven for thinking that Alfred Hitchcock had directed the picture. Beyond that, a regular and sustained interpretation was that Bunuel was daring to pull back the veil on one of society's final taboos, female sexuality. And for many, the answer Bunuel appeared to be suggesting was that women want to be dominated, humiliated, controlled and confined which also suggested that sexual engagement was all about power. How many times have we heard the utterance, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac? Perhaps often enough to believe it is true. But who would ever have suggested such a notion? People in power. And obviously, they were not speaking for people who were oppressed, but rather expressing their own fantasies. And when that power is exerted, invariably it is in an abusive manner uninvited overtures, unwanted attention, inappropriate behaviour, harassment and assault. Which suggests that the only way Severine could overcome her frigidity was to be dominated by a powerful man. Severine is neither icy nor is she frigid and she does not fantasise about being raped. On the contrary, she is a survivor of a sexual assault. As early as the 14th minute in the film, we see Severine as a young girl being molested by an adult male. A victim of a pedophile, she has been unable to process what happened and so still carries the trauma. She lacks the necessary verbal and emotional vocabulary to express the sustained grief she has carried with her ever since. 
With that in mind, let us examine the opening sequence, where Severine is dragged into a wood, tied up, and then flagellated. She wears a red Eisenhower suit, double-breasted jacket with a mid-length princess line dress. And yet, that opulent elegance is quickly torn away as she is stripped and whipped by two men. The initial interpretation of this sequence is that it is Severine's fantasy. No, the opening sequence is an expression of Severine's sense of helplessness, of being overpowered. So every time we see Severine tied up, whipped or pelted with muck, it is not her fantasy, but rather a recurring nightmare. Severine admits as much when, in the bordello, she spies through a peephole and sees a man being humiliated at the hands and feet of another prostitute. Alors vous avez bien vu? Well, did you see? asks the madame. Qu'est-ce que vous en dites? What do you think? Comment peut-on descendre aussi bas? How can anyone sink so low? replies Severine. Vous avez sans doute l'habitude, mais moi ça me répugne. I suppose you're used to it. I am not. Just as in the novel, Bunuel's plot and his handling of it becomes more and more contrived, to the point that it is all but impossible to credit anything as real, which means everything is the product of Severine's fevered imagination. During the course of her afternoons in the bordello, she encounters a gangster named Marcel. He becomes infatuated with her to the point that he shoots her husband Pierre, leaving him both paralysed and blind. By then, the plot has become so implausible it falls apart, if only because Severine's damaged imagination can no longer support it. At which point, everything is restored to normal. Pierre regains his sight, rises from his wheelchair, and there is no mention of the villainous Marcel. Almost everything that happens occurs strictly within the confines of Severine's mind. The final lines... What are you thinking, Severine? About you, Pierre perfectly echoes the exchange that interrupts the trauma sequence that opens the film. À quoi penses-tu, Séverine? What are you thinking, Séverine? Je pensais à toi. About you. But with the collapse of the plot, with Séverine waking from her nightmares, does not mean she is completely free of them. The final shot indicates that her past is still with her. Succinctly, Belle de Jour is not a surrealist satire on bourgeois marriage, but an examination of patriarchy and how it can pollute and imprison a woman's mind. That Belle de Jour has been for so long interpreted any other way merely underlines the degree to which patriarchy controls public discourse. For millennia, that discourse denied women a voice. Many of those voices would have recounted their experiences. Denied education, their thoughts were not written down. The fact that the voices were never heard, the stories never read, led many to believe that suffering never occurred. And for women, that only compounded the sense of isolation. Consequently, women developed non-verbal modes of communication, so feelings could be expressed without men suspecting that anything was being communicated at all. No wonder Freud couldn't answer the question. But times are changing, and here is comedian Dylan Moran offering up his insight on his 2004 tour, Monster. And I think men get very envious as well as, of, of, the, uh, of the radar, the sensitivity that women have, you know? Because if you say, if a woman friend of a girlfriend, wife, woman friend of yours says, oh, I'm, I'm just going to go and see so-and-so, 
for, you know, in the cafe for, I'll be back in a little bit. And uh, they come back and say, well, how was so-and-so? Say, oh, she's not so good. Not so good. <laughs> Early onset diabetes. Which is having an affair, which is, you know, complex. <laughs> and uh, there's a very, very good chance he's going to lose her job as well. <laughs> and you say, what, that's incredible. You found all that out in 15 minutes? She told you all this? Oh, no, no, she didn't say anything, but she didn't finish your tea. Thank <laughs> you.